A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. All right, welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor-in-chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson & Hollywood, though uh, in a rare situation, Ann is sitting across from me in the New York office. We've never done this before, and it's for our 50th episode, so it feels very appropriate to be in the same room as you, Ann, for this <laughs> landmark moment. It's funny because I was in Seattle for the Seattle Film Festival over the weekend, which is where we hatched the idea for Screen Talk just a year ago. Um, and, I, and it felt a little sad that you weren't around, you know, to kind of... I wanted to go, but I ended up here in New York instead. Which is fun, because I came back and here you are. And uh, it's Thank interesting you. to kind of look back on where we started with all this a year ago. Sort of, we were processing can and leaning towards the fall with the award season starting to take shape. And we're kind of there right now, but also in this quieter period, right? I mean, Not much going on, really. I mean, there's the LA Film Festival happening back home, which I seem to be missing on some level, although mm. there's virtual screenings going on. Yes. And uh, I covered the opening night, which was um, Grandma, which was at Sundance. With Lily Tomlin. Which is actually delightful. I still haven't seen it, unfortunately. A, a, a sweet... Uh, actually, she's playing a pretty tough character. She's she's a It's a great lesbian grandma fighting for her granddaughter's right to get an abortion. I mean, Lily Tomlin hasn't had a lot of bad stages of her career. She's that. always good. Yeah. And she's the best thing about that Jane Fonda series that's on right now, uh, which I don't care for particularly, but she's it's a hit, believe it or not. It's interesting you mentioned that since Jane Fonda was being talked about as an awards candidate back at Cannes for that one scene in Youth. We'll see if that if that materializes. I mean, she's fantastic in it, but I mean, no, we love Jane Fonda. She's she's a great actress, but I think that particular what is it called, Frank and Gracie? It's um, it's 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 sort of a, a, a ragtag comedy series that's all over the place. Right, and so Lily Tomlin and Grandma, do you think it's just a purely commercial movie, or is it also a, an awards contender? I mean, that all depends on whether it gets absolutely rave reviews across the board. If it's a hit, and which is you know, Sony Pictures Classics is handling, so that's a possibility. They know, they know. And uh, if, the, if if there's room for her at the end of the year, she's certainly a popular figure. But it's a comedy, and comedies are tougher. Always an uphill battle. But then it, it's it's interesting to start talking about LAFF with this movie that we already talked about at Sundance. I mean, there's a lot of new material there as well. So what have you gleaned from LAFF this year in terms of quality? Well, Stephanie Elaine, it's her fourth year, um, and she's a well-established producer. Uh, she, apps, she did Boys in the Hood back in the day, and, and more recently, uh, Beyond the Lights, the Gina Prince Bythewaite, which is a terrific movie. Um, and she has a vision, and she, she cleaned house a bit. A lot of people left. David Anson left. Doug Jones left. Um, very young team of programmers, less experienced, 
And she's not playing the game uh, the way it's been played. There, you know, a movie like Best of Enemies that Magnolia offered to them, they weren't interested. Mm. You know, that did well at Sundance. Uh, it would have played for the sort of older art house demo. They're really going young. A huge percentage of first-time filmmakers, a very high percentage of women and uh, people of color, very multicultural, reaching for the uh, a kind of hipper, younger, more urban. LA audience, and I think it's very brave of them. Um, but are they throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Mm. I mean, that's the question. You know, there are a lot of movies right. that we haven't really heard of, and so you know, we have to check them out. But do we want to? Um, that's the question. You know? So I guess the question is, in a broader sense, is, is also you know, is there is it worth it to fight for that younger demo when? these aren't necessarily the people who are going to flock to the festival. From Can the they get them to come? That's the question. I mean, one part of the festival, I think it's called um, LA Muse, which I think is actually a really good idea, is focused on a lot of uh, local filmmakers and, that, and films that were shot in LA that had LA interest. Right. You know? See, that seems to hold most attention, just from a theoretical standpoint, on the other side of the country, looking at it and thinking about how, say, the Tribeca Film Festival has fought to prove its worth in this incredibly competitive climate. I mean, look, we're all inundated with possibilities, and if you're an older art house person already committed to certain kinds of movies, then you know what you want. And if you're a younger person, then you're less inclined to be interested in festivals at all. So why try to be sort of a, compet a competitor with the people who already have whatever that is, you know, a good festival with, a, you know, exclusive new movies on lockdown when you can do something that's more of a service to the people who want that festival to be there and showcase the movies that are already being talked about that have already sort of proven their worth for an audience that didn't have the luxury to see them at Sundance or whatever. So this is an experiment, you know, and a worthy experiment, and I, I applaud them, and, you know, they're trying to get filmmakers together with distributors. They're hoping, you know, that they'll, they'll get some sales out of it, you know, um, as a market. I'm just curious to see if the folks show up. So what what are some of the possible sales prospects? I mean, is, is it could there be some sort of a marketplace at LAFF? For well, they sold uh, that movie um, that David Oyelowo was in, Nightingale. Now, the movie Nightingale is playing in in this, uh, and that was a world premiere at LAFF. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah, sold yeah, there. yeah. And, and in fact, they sold like five or six things out of that mm. section. So okay. I, I actually think there's good potential for that. Sure. I mean, I remember seeing. Last year, Man from Reno there, and that was a nice sort of discovery, or something like uh, Dead Man's Burden, which was a really interesting kind of minimalist western that Anne didn't really care for. <laughs> <laughs> Judging from my expression, but it was beautifully nice shot. About doing this <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, it's is it really worth the battle to have these new movies if those are the kind of movies you're going to get? Where some people might, might think they're strong, and maybe you'll get a few sales, but. Overall, you're just going to create more of a hindrance towards establishing yourself on the festival circuit. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll send people to see, you know, um, uh, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I'm losing it now. The teenage, the te uh, what's Diary it? of a Teenage Girl. Yeah, I'll, I will definitely send people to see Diary of a Teenage Girl, which, you know, has been established at this point. Another Sony Classics movie, it's, so they're the yeah. best bet they yeah. have. <laughs> and then there's obviously the Inside Out screening, sure. you know, and you can go to that. But I have um, to tell you, Inside Out, I went to see that again after Cannes uh, in Seattle this past weekend with my parents, and there were a bunch of 
families with their kids in that screening, and it was really fascinating to see how it played to the room, because it's as, exactly as you might imagine, and when, when people get a chance to see it, they can see how it's bright and colorful, but it's also very dark and sophisticated in terms of what it's implying on a regular basis, and when those dark moments hit, the kids got very quiet, you know, and then they were like sort of bubbly the whole time through outside of that, so I'm really curious since that movie's coming out in a couple of weeks. I hope it does playing. well. I really do. I have to assume it will. It seems like the sort of thing where they, you know, Pixar is still an established brand that people trust, and there's enough excitement. And the reviews will it. be pretty, pretty great. You know, they yeah, are. They people are. love it. So, I mean, frankly, seeing Inside Out at a film festival doesn't feel like a disconnect to me because it actually works really well in that environment. So you're talking about things that already have a track record out there. I mean, I think that's a really good example of ways to leverage a film festival for certain kinds of audiences. I'm sure the Inside Out screening at LAFF will be packed and probably help it on some level. Sure, sure. So there's there's a conversation to be had about sort of what um, film festivals do for movies in terms of expectations, irrespective of whether or not they're world premieres. But um, since we're on that topic... Maybe we should talk about one that's opening this week, which is Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, that broke at Sundance and Fox Searchlight, which is, of course, the Ne Plus Ultra, the, the gold ring, the thing you want. <laughs> they picked it up uh, for pretty some, uh, for worldwide rights, um, out of Sundance. And then it went on to win the jury prize and the audience prize. Which is sort of the golden ring of sorts. Although, it's not an obvious kind of awards movie per se. I don't think it is actually. I agree. I don't think it is at all. Maybe. I don't, I don't even think screenplay. I, I, my view of it is that the screenplay is, 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 is strong and it's the original novelist, first time novelist, Jesse, uh, Jesse Andrews, Mm -hmm. um, uh, actually adapting his own work. Uh, with the help of the producer Dan Fogelman, who's yeah. a writer in his own right of things like um, Bolt and Tangled animated movies, as sure. well as um, Crazy Love. What was that? What was that crazy called? Stupid Love. Crazy Stupid, as well as Crazy Stupid Love. Yes. So the the thing about that is that he he uh, it, it's it's really really well structured, but I think it's the it's the actors who pull it out. Well, and the, the thing about that movie is that no matter how much you talk about it as being uh, not your average cancer movie, let's say, in the sense that it's got this film geek protagonist and kind of like a, a giddiness that you don't always see with that subject matter, it is, at the end of the day, a cancer movie. It's a handkerchief movie. Yes. And it's one that I think on certain levels we have seen before. And I remember seeing... Not unlike Fault in Our Stars. Exactly, which I assume on some level is white sort of drove it to drove be that big deal and, and so forth I would assume that because Edgar Wright was on the jury maybe he was sort of struck, struck by the sort of the cinephile element to it that there are Warner Herzog jokes in the movie it's pretty know? funny for a cinephile you're going to like because the kids make these movies inside the movie and they're really fun but I did I was seated with a fairly influential festival programmer at Sundance who I remember afterwards said uh, I don't like movies like that that are so obviously trying to manipulate the way I feel. And that, to me, seems like the biggest divide, no matter what, with this kind of material. If anybody can pull it off, it's Fox Searchlight, and word of mouth seems pretty solid. But is it going to go to a Fall in Our Stars level? I think that's a different kind of question, because Fall in Our Stars 
was really driven by this foundation of the book and the fan behind the fan. This behind doesn't the book, have the same thing, or the cast for that matter. No, um, I think this will play, uh, and but again, uh, the critics will be mixed, uh, more mixed than they were at, at Sundance. In the end, I, I think there will be people who are sort of there's some, there's something very bright and perky and and overtly entertaining about it, and that's why I give credit to the actors, because the actors do reach the emotions sure. that are at the center of this. They sure. bring that home. It is well, it is well acted, and it's very well shot. It's and the parents, great. too, are funny. Yeah, Nick Offerman in particular, I thought was really outstanding. Um, but and John Bernthal is their teacher. Yeah. You know? It's interesting to think about that, sort of like that Fox Searchlight touch, because it's, it's almost like the Pixar thing, like it's smuggling a certain bright and colorful energy into, into darker places. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Birdman was doing on some level. And so there were audiences who, who went to it see almost like they were going to go see an action movie or something because it had that virtuous element, but it was much more sophisticated, obviously. And so, I don't know, but I, but I am always curious about how these movies continue to travel when they start out at, at Sundance. I mean, you mentioned Diary of a Teenage Girl. That would have been my pick to win the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year. I thought it was the strongest piece of Much directing, acting, really audacious, and, and also... And perfect. I didn't yeah. think, for me, it was a very high degree of difficulty without falling down at all. Right. I was going to say that it's it's very believable, in spite of the fact that it's it's a very particular situation with this woman in the early 70s who has an affair with an older man. It's just, it just seems like it's not turning that into anything sensationalistic. It's a very credible sort of transition that agreed. she goes through. Agreed, and, and also beautifully acted, and also based on, a, in this case, a graphic novel. And worth pointing out, Mirror on the Dying Girl is about a dying girl who's sort of has an, an effect on the emotions of this guy, and this is a movie that's much more about the girl and her diary. So that's right. It's, it's got this comes that, from the point of view of the guy. Yeah. And, and it's, it, this is a really good year for talking about movies from a feminist perspective, which I'm sure, you know, for a lot of people is, should be every year. But if you think about, you know, that you could talk about both Mad Max and this adaptation of a graphic novel about, a, you know, it's like a period drama in the same breath. I mean, it, se it seems like maybe that might be one of the defining sort of talking this points. This was the year of the women. It was certainly the year of the women at Sundance, and it continues to be. It was very, a lot of stuff to talk about at Cannes, too. And our first real Oscar conversation for this year was about Carrie Mulligan. Now, in terms of whether or not women are going to end up sort of leading the charge into award season, I mean, again, we still got to see stuff for Jen, so have to see those movies that could end up being that. Obviously, that would be the one to sort of epitomize all of that, to consolidate those conversations towards the end of the year. So what else do we have to look forward to right now? I mean, like you said, it's a really quiet time, but in terms of new releases, it's even quieter, right? Jurassic World is going to... And, well, here's the thing. The, the box office, the summer season is supposed to be the time when everything is going on all four cylinders. You know, it's supposed to be buffo. It's supposed to be, you know... I feel like I should carry around a change jar that you have to put 25 cents in every time you say buffo. Oh, I love buffo. That's my, one of my favorite variety words. But but the problem is that it's been lagging, and it's and everything has just been a little bit disappointing. Um, and so I think the first movie, I mean, I've been talking to Tom Bergman, our ace box office guy, and he's predicting that Jurassic World, while it will do incredibly well, like between 100 and 140 million this weekend, which is nothing, nothing to sneeze at. 
it's not going to be as big as a lot of people want it to be. Well, what is other big? Things. I mean, what is the, what He's is? He's going to be comparing it to Fast and Furious and to the original Jurassic, and and you know we'll see where it ends up in terms of inflation dollars. You it's know? still going to do better than Mad Max, though. Definitely, Mad Max is a... crawling along right. to a decent worldwide box office, but it's sure. certainly not a big. It, it, it's barely <laughs> breaking. See, that's what I find always so frustrating about this stuff is that. Fast and Furious can do well because it's men and cars, and Jurassic World can do well because it's a property that people are already closely identifying with, and both are driven by CGI in a big way, whereas Mad Max, which we, we've talked about that so much, I mean, the critics really came out in full force. I've seen it three times and, now. Yeah, and the, I thought the marketing campaign was pretty good. Yeah, well, I mean, no problem, but, but remember, these movies came out in the early 80s, you know, and, and that's a long time. Well, Jurassic Park came out in the early 90s, so if that's the argument, then there's more driving this movie. No, there's than... no question about that. There's no question that Jurassic is a bigger property in terms of, of a brand, in terms of a franchise, and, and also, Chris Pratt coming off of Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a pretty big deal. Right, and it also opens up a question about the Spielberg touch, right? I mean, not And he worked on this. So he... Yeah, I mean, if you read that Times piece, I mean, it said that he was sort of texting notes to the Absolutely. set and stuff, and it, it makes you wonder, I mean, it's like, where is the industry right now where, you know, 20 years ago, Steven Spielberg's influence was almost the same thing that it is now, in a sense, it's not... To his credit, and he's a little bit like Clint Eastwood in this way, he continues to stay in touch. He's always fostered right. new talent. But who He's else? He's always been looking at what everybody's doing. Question, He's very right? competitive. George Miller is about the same age. Seventy. Yeah, they're both. In, I think Spielberg's, I think Spielberg's a bit younger than that. Yeah, well, we'll have to fact check it later. But I mean, it's an interesting question because they're but they're essentially the same generation. But it's like nobody's really been able to parallel Spielberg's ability to do that, and it doesn't seem like anybody else has risen up with that kind of influence since then. I mean. J.J. Abrams, maybe a little bit with the bad robot Well, crew. James Cameron is enormously influential. Peter Jackson is enormously influential. Are they still, though? I mean, when was That's the last well, time? Cameron's were? working on his Avatar yeah, right. movies, and Jackson just, you know, delivered his last Hobbit. Right. You know, so he had three Lord of the Rings and three right. Hobbits. It's just, it's notable that it's just such a limited field, and it... it definitely comes ahead of any kind of quality. I mean, Jurassic World did not look like nearly as good a movie as some of the reactions I'm seeing. I mean, you thought it was okay. Right? I liked it okay. I mean, I'm not going to make huge claims for it. I sat in a big IMAX theater on 42nd Street with my 3D glasses on and had a really good time. And I was a little nervous because there had been some queries about the sexual politics of it with Bryce right. Dallas Howard as the owner of the new Jurassic World. And yeah. She's... She's sort of the, what they do is make her the sort of classic, identifiably workaholic corporate executive who's lost touch with her family, lost touch with some of the human values while she's pursuing her work ethic. Mm -hmm. This is something we can all relate to. Yeah. And then her two nephews show up and they get lost in the, in the, in the park just when this marauding Indominus Rex gets yeah. out of its pen. And Chris Pratt, who you, met, you meet early on, is the Navy ex-Navy guy who's been training the Raptors, right? And he's uh, he's got a thing for her, but they they've been you know their first date didn't work out, and we know that nature will win. You know, the of two of them will somehow get together. She becomes humanized. 
she loses her clothes along the way. Mm. And, and, and the dialogue's not great. No, but I'm, that doesn't matter. Yeah. It gets where it needs to go. Well, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I almost feel like for a lot of the reactions to this movie, it seems like the bar was so low that people are pleasantly surprised it's right. not a total train It's the rate. best Jurassic Park sequel, all right, since maybe Lost World. Yeah, I like Lost World. That's all right. Got a bad rep. It, it's, it, it's fun and almost like quirky in a way that you usually don't see, and maybe that's because of certain miscalculations, I don't know, but I, I kind of like a good sort of semi-train wreck when there's still some, you know, solid filmmaking in there. I guess... This isn't, this isn't so much about great filmmaking. Right, this I guess is, that's this the big Solid question. storytelling. The big issue that now we can analyze further and has been in the conversation for a while is I remember seeing Colin Trevorrow's first movie, Safety Not Guaranteed, at Sundance. Which I loved. Yeah, I thought it was a charming little movie. I mean, not perfect, but it had it had sort of like this scrappy element in the way that it used the rom-com formula. Um, and very funny, very good witty yeah, banter. Sort of a science fiction movie, not entirely, but also legitimately a science fiction movie if you wanted that from it. But there was nothing in that movie that indicated that this filmmaker should be using whatever technical expertise he had to, to tackle this movie. I guess the question is, does any of that translate here, formula-wise, or in terms of how the story works? I mean, it just... I would say that the gender dynamics are fun. The, you know, you've got your... your look, what are the form, what are the formulaic elements of this movie? You're waiting for the various people to get gobbled by the right. monster. But do we care and, about And the it? villain. You want yeah. the villain, Vincent D'Onofrio, to get his own at right. some point. And, and the heroic, you know, couple sure. to, to, to prevail and save the nephews. Sure. And, and marauding monsters, you know, against each other and... and um, the pterodactyls get out of the thing, and it's the birds. There's a Jaws right. reference. There's a lot of fun. Well, I, I, the, the, the question that I was really trying to get at, though, is, is could this filmmaker go back and, and have his indie career? Or does sure. He In fact, he says he's going to. Right? right. I mean, would somebody like that even want to continue along this route? I mean, in the well, he made his money, he made his, yeah. his moment, and he can... He can move on from here. I think a lot of them are aware. I mean, you know, Darren Aronofsky and any number of other filmmakers make it very clear that it's risky to try to take the, the your quirky personal projects to the studios. They're not going right. to do well by them. And I, I totally understand somebody wanting to make money, but I almost wonder if it's worth that kind of trade-off. If, you know, there are other ways to kind of establish your brand and, and get an agent who can find you some solid paying gigs without necessarily tackling it tentpole that may completely destroy you. I mean, it, this it, one was within the realm of what he could, what he could reasonably feel excited about. Right, because he liked the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, it worked actually. The the other movie that we should talk about that's it's opening next Wednesday. So before we do our next episode, is from another first time filmmaker who I don't think will be tackling Jurassic Park. Nor is movies. he going to be chased by the Hollywood studios. Though I'd be curious to see what it would be like. The tribe uh, from this uh, Ukrainian director's name I always botch, um, Milos. I was just going to challenge you yeah. to do I it. I have to look it up. We can look it up. But you know, the nice thing about it is that this movie had no sound in it. Or no dialogue, so... Oh, no, it has lots of sound. What it has is no dialogue because it's a set in a school for the deaf. 
and yet um, there is sound. It's just not the sound of people right. talking. They so, make noises, yes, and they move their hands around a lot, and they actually express themselves with a great deal of eloquence. And they're but they're taught they're speaking in Ukrainian dialect. They're not speaking English. There's no, it's not a, like there's some kind of universal sign language. I mean. It's an unsubtitled movie in a foreign language. Correct. Which so is we have absolutely no clues, and we know exactly what's going on, because they're all really expressive actors. And the director's name is Miroslav Slaboshnitsky, <laughs> which I totally disremembered without looking up. Uh, but really talented guy. I mean, the way that this movie unfolds, single shots that Long go on for takes. minutes at a time. But it's not like it's a pure gimmick. I mean... Talking of, uh, speaking of dark storytelling, the, the way in which this movie unfolds is surprise would be surprising even if it was told in a traditional manner. And some of the more shocking elements involving some of the female characters. I mean, it's not a movie for everyone, that's for sure. But it's basically the school is set up in such a way that criminal elements are taking advantage of these girls and using them in ways that they should not be used. Right. And Sexually, I, and it was, I believe, submitted as Ukraine's Oscar submission last year, but was not um, nominated, which is too bad because I thought it would have been a, a really interesting way to kind of push the boundaries of those rules. It is a foreign language film, and it's it was certainly one of the more remarkable among them that I saw at a film festival last year. Well, I'm curious to see what else this guy does. Absolutely. But, but here's the thing. I mean, we've all seen, you know, coming-of-age movies and first-time filmmakers, and all over the world we see films that are, are, are brand new, and this one managed to grab a lot of people's attention because it's so vicious and visceral and unusual. We've just never seen anything like it. Which is also a good description for a first-time film that we were happy to see did get submitted for the Oscars this year. Hungary submitted Son of Saul, which was certainly my favorite movie at Cannes this year. Was I think it was close to the top of the year. Me too. Yeah. And and I I can't. Uh, I, we all assumed that Hungary would do this. It's, it was the obvious place. The first. Um, official submission I'm aware of for this year, and it will be one of the top contenders. I would be very surprised if this didn't make it to the final five, and I think it could have a chance of winning. And no big surprise, the Sony Pictures class is released. <laughs> <laughs> they are the not in the room the right now. <laughs> Today's show. Well, but it, it is actually, it's nice to see that one of the bigger sort of award season stories this past week is a movie like that, because we're going to get steamrolled by a whole bunch of bigger things in, I would say, like a month, month and a half, and we get the Toronto lineup and the Telluride's on us, and all these different pieces are coming together. And to me, it's always much more interesting to talk about the foreign films. Yeah, and Venice stuff. I mean, it's just, you get inundated with all these bigger movies, and it's not like the, the other stuff gets, you know, decimated. It's still there, but it's less attention-grabbing and... I'm really curious to see how a movie like Son of Saw plays for different kinds of audiences, whether the quote-unquote Holocaust card is sort of something that alienates people or that it throws them off. Or I think there's good. a curiosity factor yeah. now, because I, was, I, was I went to um, a rather enjoyable evening, which was the AFI uh, tribute to Steve Martin, and at least at my table, you know, just over dinner, you know, conversation, Everybody was saying, "Why did you see it? Can you know?" Blah, blah, blah. Son of Saul. Everybody has registered on that. That's the one they're all interested in. 
So they need Steve Martin's endorsement to get this movie to Academy voters. That's basically the crossover. I would love to see him host again. That would be my wish. At that Oscars. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like each year they strike out a little bit more when they go back to somebody who they already know. So after oh, last he's year... Oh, he's top of the list. They're always trying to get him. He says no. That's probably a conversation for another day. But <laughs> personally, I've, I've felt like the last 50 episodes have been a real adventure for us, just trying to figure out where the middle ground is in terms of our sensibilities, where the <laughs> film place, the film market is going, all these different things. When we don't agree... <laughs> Uh, I feel like somehow we're agreeing about a higher calling, and it's always nice to see that, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about talking about movies, so. Always fun to see you in person, Eric. <laughs> till, till the next 50, let's keep it real. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other uh, colleagues in education is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.